0: Let's begin. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we ask you to help us to open our minds and our hearts and our ears uh, as we get into looking at the whole idea of who is St. Peter today. Uh, so many people think that they know him. Oh, he's the on that put his foot in his mouth all the time and so forth and so on. Probably that's one way of looking at it, but there's another way. And so help us to really see the real St. Peter and the importance of his, his position in, uh, in the hierarchy of the church. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name. Well, like I said, so many people think that they know who St. Peter is, and or was. And yet, there are so many little things that uh, I would like to bring out uh, to have us see this man as far more important uh, than we often give him credit for. We know that he's, you know, blundered a few times in the Gospels and seems to be very impetuous, but there's more to it than that. And so I've prepared a little biography here, and I'd like to go over it and then kind of add some things that um, I think are important uh, to supplement what, what we have here. I set this up before uh, I came, but you just never know. There's always something that's going to upset it. Anyways, we have very little uh, way of written documentation uh, from or about St. Peter, even though he is one of our most important saints. The two letters attributed to Peter give us no personal information about the man. However... Other writings, from other writings, we can learn a great deal about this man that we call the first pope and a great saint. Now, realize that the word pope was not used in the church for a couple hundred years. So that came along much later. But it's one way that we have of identifying who Peter is. To begin We know that Peter was born and raised in a very strict Jewish family, and I'll tell you how we know that a little later. In or near the small fishing village of Capernaum, on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, he was given the name Simon. His father's name was Jonah. Both of those items are in the Gospels. He was married, but we have no knowledge about his wife. However, his mother-in-law is mentioned in Matthew chapter 8. He and his brother Andrew, who was also an apostle and saint, were fishermen by trade and owned their own boat, which was no small item at that time. One day, as they were casting their nets, Jesus approaches and calls uh, calls to them to follow him, saying, I will make you fishers of men. Now that might seem strange to us today, but they would understand that immediately being professional fishermen. Peter, therefore, is the first apostle to be called and the remaining eleven soon follow. Peter being first is significant to the understanding of his position among the twelve throughout public life throughout the public life and mission uh, and ministry of Jesus, as we shall soon see. In all the listings of the apostles by name, Peter is always listed first, and his name is mentioned in the Bible far more than any other apostle, including Paul. Peter is also present at the time of all major events, miracles, and teachings, in the life of jesus christ with the exception of the first that is the baptism of christ where no apostle is known to be present or mentioned a major event often overlooked by most people is when jesus asked his apostles who do people say that i am i think you've all heard this several times perhaps (laughs) read as part of the readings at uh, Sunday Mass. And the apostles and those present uh, offer a variety of uh, replies. But Peter speaks up and says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. A very important statement. Jesus commends Peter and then makes the great pronouncement, You... uh, Blessed are you, son of Jonah, that's his father, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my heavenly father. In other words, Peter was inspired by the Holy Spirit, or the father, um, to recognize not only Jesus as an important person, but as the... Long for Messiah of the Jewish people. A very important statement. And then Jesus goes on to say, Blessed are you, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. You see? And I say to you, You are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. A very, very important statement. Okay. Now, notice that he went from saying, calling him Simon in the beginning, and now it changes to Peter. Well, there's a variety of explanations. <clears throat> There's a variety of explanations as to the change, but as you know, in sacred scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, whenever there is a name change, either by Jesus or God the Father in some cases, that person is designated for an important role in God's plan of salvation. And we see this several times, particularly in the New Testament. John the Baptist's name was designated by God even before he was born. Jesus' name was identified by the angel Gabriel to Mary even before he was born. Uh, Peter's name is changed here. Paul's name is changed later. Uh, We have a number of name changes in the Old Testament, All of these people, for example, Abraham's name was Abram, A-B-R-A-M, before it was changed. Sarah's name was Sarai. So those people were very important to the beginning uh, and the implementation of God's plan of salvation. So the change of name is very important. Now, as I mentioned last week, Whenever we hear the use of Jesus' name or someone relying on Jesus' name, it is not a magic wand of any kind. And they're referring to more than the name that Jesus is called. They're referring to the entire person and being of Jesus and his purpose. And that's true for all of us in Jewish, culture of the time period of Christ, people did not give out their names to strangers. You couldn't have, you know, like a license plate with your name and sometimes your picture on it. Uh, you didn't go to a big meeting and have people uh, put a little badge on your uh, chest or shoulder with saying, hey, my name is Joe or Pete or Sally or whatever. Uh, they didn't do that. Their name was held very close because since there was no, or it was not common to have anything down in writing, because most of the people couldn't read anyways, name was very important. It was part of giving a part of yourself to the individual. And by taking the name of somebody, you were then taking something from that person. Uh, Most often it would be permission to do something, permission to be a little more familiar, or permission to, you know, whatever. But you've got to understand, we often use the name of Jesus or talk about, I did something in the name of Jesus, but you really understand That what you're doing is very important and not just flip over uh, the writings or the sayings or whether, Well, the name of Jesus, okay, Uh, we know what that is and go on. You've got to put some more importance to it. I would like you to think about that... uh, At some point in time. Particularly as we approach the season of Lent. And we'll talk more about that. Next week. But. Yes Dick. When did this take place? Was it very early? Middle? Late? It was probably late in the life of Christ. Before the. uh, Crucifixion. Yes. But in the, the latter part. Yes. All right, let's go on. This statement by Jesus is recognized by most theologians of today's world and other great men of the church as the definitive indication of the primacy of Peter as head of the church hierarchy. It also tells us that it was the father that inspired Peter to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, the Father, and you remember, there's only one God, so the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one, and it is the job of the Holy Spirit to really take uh, up the role, but at this time, since it was in that in-between time, uh, it could have been either, but doesn't really make a lot of difference. Okay. I'm going to repeat this. This statement by Jesus is recognized by most theologians today and for the last 500 or more years um, and other great men of the church as the definitive indication of the primacy of Peter as the head of the church hierarchy. It was also us that, uh, that... It also tells us that it was the Father that inspired Peter to recognize Jesus, and not something that Jesus uh, thought up on his own. Okay. Then, continuing on with this same purpose, Jesus gives Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven, saying, "I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on church will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth." Will be loose in heaven, Matthew 16. Nothing could be clearer than these two statements um, from Jesus, the Son of God Himself, not only making Peter the head of the church, but giving him the power on behalf of the church for all important matters. This was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah in a similar event back in the fifth or sixth century uh, in Isaiah chapter 22. The whole idea of giving the keys of the kingdom of heaven in this culture was significant of saying, you know, the door is open or my checkbook is open or whatever, do with it as you reasonably think. Now, Uh, I want to talk a little bit about that, but I'm going to hold it off right now until the end. Just before Jesus ascends to heaven, he commissioned all of the 11 apostles, remember Judas at this time then uh, was deceased, uh, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, etc., etc. He doesn't give them specific ways or words to do this. And that is because this is now the time and the role of the Holy Spirit. We saw this in action when Peter proclaims Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus declares that it was a revelation from the Father, but more likely it was from the Holy Spirit. And now that they are out to go, that they are being commissioned to go out uh, to the whole world and tell the good news, but exactly what is the good news? Uh, What are they going to tell them? In the early days after the ascension, all the apostles had to teach was what they saw and heard from and about Jesus Christ. However, gradually... The Holy Spirit begins to exercise his role in God's plan of salvation. And we see that in Peter's speeches, which we uh, talked about last week, uh, were greatly inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we mentioned most of this last week, so we're not going to repeat it. Uh, in Acts 10, We are told of an incident when Peter, in a time of deep prayer, has a vision of a great sheet coming down to uh, the ground. In it were all the four-legged animals, reptiles, and birds of the sky. A voice said um, to him, Get up, Peter, slaughter and eat. However, Peter replies, Certainly not, sir never have I eaten anything profane or unclean. That goes back and testifies to the strict Jewish upbringing that he had. Remember, there were certain dietary laws that forbid uh, eating certain uh, foods, mostly uh, animals or birds, and uh, a few other foods as well. And this is going to be the beginning of a change in that. The voice spoke again saying, What God has made clean, you are not to call profane. Now, that might, you know, people might just kind of skip over that. But what it's saying is that the dietary laws of the Mosaic law uh, were for hygiene purposes only. They were not intended to be uh, laws that worship God. Remember when the Israelites were wandering in the desert after their escape from Egypt for 40 years, they had to have strict dietary laws in order to keep them healthy. And Moses prepared all of these laws and made them seriously uh, uh, to be observed. Well, gradually, those laws took on a religious significance. And over the years, they became embedded in Judaism and all of its, its laws. Well, now what Jesus is saying here is that it is not necessary any longer to observe them as laws. You still had to be aware of the hygiene problems and to use some common sense, but to uh, abstain or or be forbidden to eat uh, the meat of uh, a hog, you know, ham, bacon, whatever, Sausage, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, simply because it came from a hog doesn't really make a lot of sense, and it certainly wouldn't be honoring God if you did it just for that reason. Okay. And so that's what is we're trying to do here, and that starts with St. Peter. I'd like to just read some of this. You don't have to go to your Bibles, if because it's not that long. Peter is in Caesarea. Caesarea is a town on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the cohort called the Illich, devout and God-fearing along with his whole household, who used to give alms generously to the Jewish people and pray to God constantly. Remember, he is... Not a Jew. Okay. One afternoon about three o'clock. He saw plainly in a vision. An angel of God come in to him. And say to him. Cornelius. We look intently at you. And looking intently at him. And seized him with fear. Said what is it sir. And he said to him. Your prayers and almsgiving. Have ascended as a memorial offering. Before God. Now send some men to Joppa and summon one Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with another Simon, a tanner, who has a household by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him left, uh, Cornelius called uh, two of his servants and a devout soldier from his staff, explained everything to them, and sent them to Joppa. Now Caesarea is a little bit north, maybe 30 miles or so north um, of Joppa. Joppa is now the city of Haifa. The next day, while they were on their way and nearing the city, Peter went up to the roof terrace to pray at about noontime. He was hungry and wished to eat, and while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance he saw heaven opened, and something resembling a large sheet coming down, lower to the ground by its four corners. In it were all the earth's four-legged animals, and reptiles, and the birds of the sky. A voice said to him, "Get up, Peter! Slaughter and eat." But Peter said, "Certainly not, sir. For I have eaten, I have never eaten anything profaned and unclean." The voice spoke to him again, the second time. What God has made clean, you are not to call profane. This happened three times, and then the object was taken up into the sky. While Peter was in doubt about the meaning of the vision and scene, the men went. Uh, men sent by Cornelius. This is the other person now asked for Simon's house and arrived at the entrance. They called out, inquiring whether Simon, who is called Peter, was staying there. As Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, There are three men here looking for you. So go down and accompany them without hesitation, because I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your being here? And they answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, respected by the uh, whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear what you had to say. So he invited them in and showed them hospitality. The next day he got up and went with them and some of the brothers from Joppa went with him. On the following day he entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and falling at his feet paid him homage. Peter, however, raised him up saying, Get up, I myself just a human being and while he conversed with him, he went in and found many people gathered together and said to them you know that it is unlawful for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a Gentile more or less go into their house but God has shown me that I should not call any person or uh, a prof- call any person profane." Or unclean. And that is why I came without objection. When sent for. May I ask then. Why you summoned me? Cornelius replied. Four days ago. At this hour. Three o'clock in the afternoon. I was at prayer in my house. When suddenly a man in dazzling robes. Stood before me. And said. Cornelius. Cornelius. Your prayer has been heard, and your almsgiving remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and summon Simon, who was called Peter. He is a guest in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you came, you, know, you were kind enough to come. And now, therefore, we all here in the presence of God want to listen to all that you have been. Commanded by the Lord to say. Then Peter goes on with this long speech. And then all of uh, Cornelius' household was converted. I won't go on the rest of it. You can read it for yourself. Chapter 10 uh, and the beginning. But this is now the beginning of a transition. Remember that the apostles up to this time preached only to the Jewish people, thinking in the mind of Judah, Judaism that God's plan of salvation and his message were meant only by the Jewish people. And now this is Peter who is now given uh, the sort of the okay to open the door to uh allow Gentiles come in to accepting Christ and be preached to them. Uh, so it was Peter who was given this, was uh, not only responsibility but permission to do a number of things that were previously against uh, Judaism in general. And so this is why Peter is, uh, one of the things that is so important. Uh, Let's go on here with this down in the middle. Regarding the two speeches uh, of Peter as mentioned above, we will explore them and their place in biblical history in this meeting. Well, we did that already. These letters are considered to be worthy of our study and following. And if you, and this is the uh, speeches there were three speeches, if I recall. The one after uh, the descent of the Holy Spirit on the Feast of Pentecost. This one here to Cornelius. And then we had sort of a two-part speech before the Sanhedrin. After the, uh, Peter heals the crippled beggar at the gate. Says, although Peter is credited with only two letters compared to Paul's 13, there are countless books and papers written regarding Peter's place as the first pope and the primacy of being the head of the church's hierarchy. This whole subject of the pope's place and role as the head of the church is one of the most important arguments of the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. I did a study here uh, with another group on the Reformation and it is interesting how the people who wanted to break away from all things Catholic uh, and establish their own religion uh, totally ignored the role of Peter and uh, the Pope um, now this was uh, early 16th century so the Pope had been well entrenched for uh, over 1500 years Batch uh, what is this thing that the Jewish people a long time ago believed unclean? who set the rule that things were unclean? Uh, well Moses did but for a reason of hygiene and health not for religion but it became embedded in their religion over a period of time. Does that make sense? Yeah, because uh, I have a son-in-law that's Jewish and eats everything. <laughs> they eat culture food, but he eats ham, beef. Oh, well ham and beef and, po- and bacon, that's not uh, pork, that's ham and bacon. <laughs> okay. That's what a good, good judge a, a good Jewish friend of mine would say but with a twinkle in her eye, yeah. All right, but you see, like I said, not much is written about Peter, but boy, when it comes to his uh, role as part of uh, the main part of the hierarchy of the church, there's a lot written about it, more or less to justify uh, their own uh, ideas and desires. Lastly, we have no record or documentation to explain why Peter went to Rome. One theory is, and this is theory again, the Holy Spirit inspiring Peter to move to Rome where it is to be the future center of the church and worldwide Catholicism. I've often been asked why Jerusalem, uh, where Jesus lived and died. Was not the center of Catholicism. The only answer that I can give to this question is: (coughs) excuse me, every place, city, nation that rejected Jesus or his church, even in the Old Testament times, has withered or, in some cases, totally disappeared as punishment for its lack of faith. And Jesus mentions this in Matthew chapter 11. This is only theory now, not history or fact. However, we do know that Peter was martyred in Rome in approximately the year 67 AD. And in some historical writings, it is said that he asked to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to be crucified in the same way or position as Jesus Christ Nevertheless, we know that he was buried in the grave on Vatican Hill, and his bones were unquestionably discovered in more recent excavations below what is now St. Peter's Cathedral, or Basilica. (coughs) Any questions on St. Peter? Yes, Gail? had free and all the power was there and he could have been inspired by the Holy Spirit to go there for that reason to establish the church so then it would spread out like Rome yet. Well that's that's true and that's kind of what I alluded to here <clears throat> but we have no written right. documentation or understanding. There's a lot of theory and you just mentioned probably the most logical one, yes, inspired by the Holy Spirit to do that. He also may have gone there because Paul had been there for a couple of years ahead of him in uh, prison and Paul had written several of his pastoral letters from Rome, okay. So there could be several reasons. I think the one you mentioned is, is probably the most logical. Any other? Yes, Dick? Milk, can you help me with the time frame here? We have Paul and we have Peter. Now, was this with um, the centurion before Peter got involved with Paul or parallel? Well, probably before Paul came into the picture. We don't know for sure. Now. We'll get into more on St. Paul, not next week, but the following week. We'll do a little biography of Paul on that subject. Uh, We do know that Paul was, or it is assumed, that Paul was about ten years younger than Christ. And so it would have to be uh, roughly ten years after Christ's death and resurrection that Peter was converted. And this incident probably happened somewhere in between. Peter and Paul eventually met in Jerusalem. I'm sorry? Peter and Paul eventually got together in Jerusalem. Uh, probably, yes. Uh-huh, and I say probably because we're not sure. Yeah, There's a lot of, you know, assuming here. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Uh, Mel, you, you mentioned uh, when you talked about uh, uh, what Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock I will build your church, my church, and uh, you, you mentioned that's a definitive statement of the promise of Peter. He said, the church you said, for well, 500 years? or. Did I, I heard of 500 years. Was there some controversy of this prior to No, no, no. Well, there's always been controversy. Always. Yeah, but 500 years, I was referring to the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Yeah, that took place uh, in beginning of uh, the 16th century, 1516 to be exact. So that's when, well, that's when it was challenged most heavily. Yeah. 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 And it's still challenged somewhat today. People, people just don't like rules and regulations, you know, or to be told what to do. Uh, but this is a uh, something that comes from God Himself, and it was Rome really took on uh, a significant part of the placement of the church through the efforts of Constantine in the early part of the 4th century. He was pretty much converted by his own mother somewhat in the same way that St. Helena uh, helped very greatly in converting St. <laughs> Augusta, her son. Um Yeah, and there's a big story about that, and I'll go on uh, with that two weeks from today. Uh, Next week, we want to talk about something else. Um, But Paul is a very interesting person as well. All right, Mike? So was Peter recognized as the leader uh, during that time? Yes. Who took over then when he was martyred? (coughs) Uh, there were three popes within the first 100 years. Uh, what's that? Linus. Uh, Linus, Cletus, Clement, and Cornelius. Yeah, Linus, Cletus, and Cornelius, I think it was. Or no, Clement. Clement, yeah. Um, yes, there were three popes by the end of the first century. And there's been 264, I believe, uh, since then. Yes? Anyone else? Joe, did you have a question? No, I was just curious. How was the first Pope, show, uh, how was the, well, the same Pope after St. Peter? Which was, In pretty much the same way uh, as it was. It was said before said before. Yes, drawing by drawing lots. By drawing lots. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When did, when did the Matthias uh, join the Matthias, uh, very shortly after Christ's death and very shortly after the first Pentecost. We don't have, you know, specifics on that. Uh, It's unfortunate, but, you know, the people going through this at the beginning never realized what the church would eventually uh, amount to in terms of people and time there was a very strong feeling that Christ would return and the end of the world would happen within their lifetime. That is the people living at the time of Christ and at the time of his death. There was a very strong uh, feeling (coughs) and this is shown by some of Paul's early writings. Uh, but gradually they came to realize that uh, this was not God's intent and that they should not be concerned with that. In fact, in first Thessalonians, I think it's first Thessalonians, um, there's a whole uh, paragraph on uh, Peter's admonishing people who refused to to work because they felt that uh, Paul you're right thank you uh, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians admonishes people who refused to work because they felt that the end of the world was going to happen pretty soon so why bother you know and he said uh, those people who refused to work shouldn't eat so uh, You can see Paul's uh, change of uh, attitude and change of mind right there. Well, the thing that Jesus said about binding and loosening on earth was what we now call the sacrament of penance, right? Not just limited to penance. Yeah, but that is, well, there is a. A better more definitive statement on that uh, in one of the gospels right after uh, this would be on uh, the night of Christ's resurrection where he uh, appears to the apostles in the upper room and they're all quaking because you know they're still afraid that they're going to get the axe too uh, and he said peace be to you uh, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them. And that is the definitive uh, statement of the power of the church to forgive sin. I little side story here. Uh, One time I got into a good argument with a priest. (coughs) I don't recommend that, but, uh, you know, I'm one that cannot keep my mouth shut at times. <laughs> in the story before Christ died, uh, he sends out his apostles two by two to heal and cure and preach and so forth. The words forgive sin is not mentioned in any of that. And... Uh, I had to write a paper of something. I don't remember all the details. It doesn't make any difference. Uh, But this priest called me and he said, what do you mean that they weren't? And I wrote right in there. They were allowed to and and encouraged to do all of these other miracles but not forgive sin. And I said, well, the power to forgive sin was not given to the apostles until the evening of the first resurrection. He said, well, that's that's beside the point. I said, well, no, that is the point. you know." And uh, neither of us agreed with each other. So, But that's the way it goes. But he was a priest, so he was right. Well, he thought so. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, you know, like I said, I... Never was one to keep my mouth shut. Um, Anyways, but I I want you to kind of think about this. The role of Peter is extremely important, not only then, but right down through the whole history of the church. Yes, there's been uh, a number of of, um, sinful popes, and there's been a number of popes that should never have been popes but their families or somebody bought them into it and oh the history of the popes I have a book on uh, that alone Uh, and I see Mary Mary is not here anyways uh, one of our members uh, gave me a book called the history of the popes and it is rather interesting because boy you have a whole the whole gamut of personalities and uh Types in there, and, and there's some. Well, in fact, one of the Avignon popes was only 16 years old uh, um, because the position was purchased by one of his uh, family members who wanted the power, could care less about the religious aspect of the role of the, of the Pope. Um, but that didn't last long, very. Thank God. Anyways. But down through the ages. The power of the Pope. Has come to us. uh, And God has blessed that. Um, Even if. uh, I've been asked just recently. If one of these sinful. uh, Priests that. Is. uh, Pretty much condemned by. The church today. For the pedophilia and all of that stuff. uh, If you happen to go into a confessional and one of these priests gives you absolution. Is that uh, valid? And I said, yes. The power of the forgiveness of sin is not from the individual, but from the church through that individual. The same way with saying uh, mass. Is the mass valid if a sinful (laughs) priest performs or presides at the mass, And the answer is yes, because the power is not from the individual but through the individual from the church. One of the tenets in my mind of the uh, popes through all the years is that there have been bad ones yeah. but never has one a bad one made any declaration or done anything against our basic beliefs that's true that's a very good point and I think that is a yeah. point to the strength that God is behind them would not allow them to do that. amen yes well, the answer is no no uh, the thing is that, that any priest who has been defrocked as the term is uh, that is his faculties are removed cannot and should not uh, hear somebody's confession. Um, No, they they cannot do that, no, legally. Now, if they do it anyways, and we've had some of that, people who have left the church and created, for example, there is a church right today in Carmichael, St. Michael's, who claims to be Catholic Church, under the auspices of the Society of St. Peter the 10th. This is a a very large group, and you wouldn't know the difference if you walked into the church. Uh, That broke away from the church in 1965, roughly, uh, because they didn't like some of the changes that were brought about by Vatican II. And so they still uh, say the Mass in the Tridentine language, the Latin, and uh, follow some of the rules uh, that have been abolished then, such as no meat on Friday, etc., etc. Some people, good but misunderstanding Catholics, uh, have gone there and said, well, they felt that they attended Mass. Technically, they have not. Uh, That doesn't mean, you know, I don't want to get all bound up in what is sin and what isn't, but uh, if they're there under uh, some misunderstanding, uh, God's not going to condemn them for it. But nevertheless, uh, and I have this directly from the bishop in writing, that Catholics in good standing cannot go there and receive any of the sacraments. They are trying to get these people to come back into the Catholic Church as a, um, I forgot the the name of the term, uh, but something like a a different separate rite. But that hasn't happened yet oh yes but not ordained officially by the Catholic Church Yeah. alright any other questions <laughs> alright what I'd like to do is to go on to talking about uh, the two letters that Peter wrote okay These are short letters um, and I'm not going to go into the uh, whole argument of whether Peter wrote them or not. There is a lot to be said about who wrote what in all of the epistles of the New Testament. But uh, I don't think that's really... Important or relevant to us today. I would like to read these, anyways, because they are in here, they are inspired, and who wrote them really is not that important. According to, you know, in your handout today, Says <clears throat> so the first letter is addressed to the Jewish convert community. In other words, those Jewish people who have become Christians or accepted the idea of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that they ignored their Judaism. Okay. These are people who have moved out of Israel into neighboring communities around the Mediterranean. And they started this diaspora, is what it's called. The word diaspora is uh, the base word for where we get our word for dispersion or distribution. It all comes from the fact that from a central authority, information has gone out or some kind of culture has gone out to the people surrounding the Mediterranean but in many cases they remained faithful Jews and just added the beliefs of Christianity to theirs at least at this time period after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD uh, the idea of Judaism in its old form had pretty much uh, died out okay. So the first letter is addressed to the Jewish convert community in the diaspora era of what is now southern Turkey. These people are having a difficult time in the alienation from their previous Jewish roots. Remember, at this time, Christianity was a movement within Judaism and not a separate or distinct faith. Peter's response to the addressees Remind them to keep in mind the sufferings of Christ and their new and their real Messiah. Much emphasis is put on the sacrament of baptism and and its cleansing effect on the soul. At this time, baptism was the only sacrament, aside from the breaking of the bread ceremony, which we now call the Mass, uh, that these people knew the other five sacraments had not yet been defined. Let me just go through some of this. Uh, I don't think we have as much time as I had planned, but nevertheless. Um, It starts out in sort of the usual uh, style of a letter uh, in this culture at this time. Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of equal value to ours through the righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be yours in abundance through knowledge of God and of Jesus the Lord. (laughs) We would say, all right, dear Joe, that's as far as we would go today or dear Mary or whatever okay Uh, they and Peter's some of Peter's opening salutations you know goes on and on and on and on yes Connie Uh, first Peter oh I'm sorry Uh, that's second Peter (laughs) sorry about that but uh, the um, The uh, salutation is pretty much the same. Peter, as an apostle of Jesus Christ to the chosen sojourners of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, in the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification by the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ May grace and peace be yours in abundance. So you see the two openings are pretty much alike. Now, there is, if you read the history behind these letters, there's a greater portion trying to decipher who really wrote these letters uh, than there is in presenting uh, letter itself and I don't think that's really relevant to us today I feel if words are inspired by the Holy Spirit it doesn't make a great deal of difference to whom they were inspired Uh, so we're not going to worry about that as I said, the emphasis on baptism is very important. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who in his great mercy gave us a new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A new birth we have always looked upon and you'll see St. Paul makes a big deal of uh, baptism makes a new creation out of you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance and an imperishable uh, undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you that is the new faith who by the power of God are safeguarded through faith to a salvation that is ready to be revealed to in the final time I'm not going to read all of this because I think it's important, but there are different points within this. The blessing, the obedience required, the reverence that we should be shown, and the mutual love within that. Chapter 2 regarding the house of God and the people. Rid yourself of all malice and all deceit insincerity, envy, envy, and slander. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, so that through it you may grow into salvation. For you have tasted that uh, the Lord is good. If you read this, you can say, well now, how could a poor fisherman write such beautiful letters? And... A couple of commentaries on this uh, talk about the remarkable quality of the Greek. Well, we don't know if Peter ever spoke Greek, nor could he read or write. Jennifer, do you have a question? Uh, that's a possibility. a possibility. I've never thought of it that way, but you're right. Um, there's a there's a predominant feeling. Uh, this is chapter one, verse four. Did you say? an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled unfading kept in heaven for you by the power of God well that's true one of the beliefs of many Protestant denominations is that once you have been saved you know on June 24th of the year 2000 I was saved uh, that was it and regardless of what you do afterwards uh, makes no difference well as we know that that isn't true that's sort of contradictory in itself yes you could have had a religious experience on june 24th night of the year 2000 or whenever uh, but that doesn't mean that that's the end. That's only the beginning of a faith. And <clears throat> your baptism should have been the crowning glory of that beginning. But that doesn't mean that you can't safeguard. The devil is always there, present and waiting for you to make the first step and open the door. So, any time. So, faith And salvation is a continuing process. It is not a one-time thing. It's a continuing process. And for people who believe strongly in this, I was saved on such and such a day and after that doesn't make any difference what I do, I think you need to pray for them to have their mind and heart opened uh, that their faith is a little more precious and fragile than they think. This letter goes on and on uh, not too long but nevertheless there's a lot of repetition in here and I think it's important uh, that we know at least the essence of it. God's uh, house and people chapter 2 Rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, insincerity, envy, and slander. In other words, make yourself new because you have been reborn in the life of Christ. Chapter 3 goes on to Christian spouses and... One of the statements here, here, uh, a lot of people get a little uh, upset about. Likewise, your wives should be subordinate to your husbands, so that even if some disobey a word, they may be won over without a word by their wives' conduct. Uh, well, in this day and age, you know, that would not go too well. Uh but you see, you've got to remember that this was written 2,000 years ago and there was a great deal of difference in uh, relationships in those days. Okay. Christian suffering is very important here. Now, who is going to harm you if you are enthusiastic for what is good? But even if you should suffer because of righteousness, blessed are you Do not be afraid or terrified with fear of them. That's pretty much the same as the last part of the Beatitudes in Matthew's Gospel chapter 7. If you read that uh, no, that would be chapter 5. If you read the last of the Beatitudes uh, the wording here is almost identical. Now we can't claim that Peter plagiarized the gospel, though. Okay, Christian restraints. And here, again, is something that is important. It's part of one of those, if, uh, as Christ said, if somebody hits you on uh, the cheek, turn the other cheek, and so forth. Well, that goes just so far. Okay. Trial by persecution, and there was a great deal of that at this time period. Right? It is felt that this was written, both of these letters were written sometime after the destruction of the temple and before the end of the first century. Uh, After the destruction of the temple would have uh, eliminated Peter as the writer, uh, but this could have been somebody who was closely related to Peter, trying to project Peter's ideas. And I think that's probably uh, most likely. All right. The second letter of Peter is along the same lines. It is shorter, but uh, I would say a little more important. false teachers. Yes, there was a great number of false teachers in the early days of the church uh, as there are today. So, don't be surprised about that. And lessons from the past, uh, we can always learn from the past. Any other questions? Do you finally get the idea of where Peter is, stands in the importance and why he is always listed first and is talked about more than any of the other apostles uh, with except perhaps John and, and Paul. They have a great deal of importance to play uh, not only in scripture but in our faith as well. But Peter is the apostle and the head of the church the first pope um, in spite of some of his shortcomings a lot of things that Peter uh, or people will point out trying to negate what I've just said is when Peter denies Christ three times well yes that's true he was human Uh, He was scared out of his wits like all the rest of the people at that time, uh, fearing that the Romans would uh, crucify him. Uh, He was human, but God forgave him that and asked him after the resurrection, Peter, do you love me? And of course, we all know that incident It's sort of a redeeming way of going to confession to Jesus himself. Um, And I think that's what's intended here. Uh, Throughout the Bible, somebody just asked me recently, uh, why would God condemn Cain for killing Abel I said well that's the answer right there but there's more to it than that what he had meant the person asking meant was that why would he go through all of this effort to uh, admonish uh, Cain and then still allow him uh, to live and I said well that is an allegory it is a way of showing that God punishes all of us punishes even good people but that doesn't necessarily mean that he wipes them out of his mind and condemns them it means that there is always room for forgiveness this is shown way back in the story of Adam and Eve Adam and Eve you know disobeyed God. It was not the eating of the apple or the eating of the tree from whatever. It was disobeying a direct command of God. And that had to be punished. But there is a little uh, point that is made later where God makes garments for Adam and Eve to wear to cover up their nakedness. And this is a point that is made to show that God doesn't totally wipe us out, but gives us another chance. And the story of Cain and Abel is the same way. Uh, Cain protests that he is a marked man and he's going to be killed and God says no, I will put a sign on your forehead or a mark on your forehead, so that people will recognize that you are being watched and protected by me, and etc. That's not God's words; those are mine. But it's a way of explaining that God, yes, punishes all of us, but still leaves the door open for us to forgive or ask for forgiveness and be forgiven. So keep that in mind. It's, it's rather important. So. Yes? I, I think oh. If, if God has uh, pain from paradise and, and the pain says, those others will kill me, who were the others? Remember, <laughs> uh, remember that the whole first eight chapters of the book of Genesis, is an allegory. It is meant to uh, basically say how certain things came about in a very general way. You can't uh, look only at some of those kinds of details. Uh, The person that asked me about the Cain and Abel thing said, well, we know that... uh, Adam and Eve had three sons. There was Cain, Abel, and Seth. But where did the women come from to, you know, uh, the wives and so forth? Well, that wasn't important to the writer of Genesis. Women weren't important. No, well, that's right. Women were not too important, and you don't see a lot of writing about women. The details are not important. It is the message. That's important, okay? And the message, as I just said, is that God punishes all of us but doesn't condemn all of us, leaves the door open for us to ask for forgiveness. And that's the story of Cain and Abel. The fact that, you know, there's no wives mentioned uh, for the sons uh, is not important, Uh, you know? Obviously, we we know that there had to be some in the background. Uh, but look look at even in the New Testament. The most important woman in the New Testament, Mary, has only two little speeches. Uh, one at the marriage feast of Cana, and the other one, uh, what? Oh, yeah, the enunciation. Yes, the enunciation. Well, there must be three, then, really, because there is a third one. But, there, you know, considering the importance to, of Mary today, the writings about her uh, in the Gospels the writings about her in any part of the New Testament is very very minor and it wasn't until long after the death and resurrection of Jesus and Mary uh, that her whole position in God's plan of salvation uh, came to light and grew so you know that's why it's important to understand the first century of our faith because it had to develop in a very slow way yes Lillian Lillian's question is why didn't God do away with Satan let's put it that way once he did what he did way back in the Garden of Eden story. Well, uh, we don't know. You know, I don't have a good answer for that. Uh, but in God's plan of salvation, um, evil is always existing. Evil is personified by Lucifer or the devil and is always there and always will be until the end of time and then all evil will be done away with we don't know how, when, or where Um, where I live we have a man that constantly every week has a uh, lecture, I don't know what he says uh, about the end times and uh, after the first five minutes I left because it was so far off base that, you know, it was unfortunate. But uh, some people go on and on about things. you got to be very careful, not only uh, about the first century, but of many things throughout Scripture. Look behind this, the words, look behind the story into the meaning the purpose or the message that is there. That is what it's all about. Yes? I think God didn't kill the devil or do away with him, whatever, so that we could choose God instead of evil. If we didn't have a choice, if there was only goodness, then the, what choice would you have? To that's right, do you that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um... I think, I think you, you hit it on the head. Uh, the idea of giving us free will or the ability to make choices automatically sets up a negative side. There is the positive and the negative. And throughout, um, it's a little difficult to repeat what she said, but the idea is, in general that evil exists as, as I just said earlier sort of as a balance uh, to good that if if there was no evil we would have no way of measuring good uh, and so we have to accept the fact that the devil is there uh, and by the way we speak the devil, the word uh, devil, of course, comes uh, from actually uh, it's an acronym in, in a way meaning the evil. Okay? The evil. And uh, the evil is the opposite of good. So, Alright. Any other questions? All right. Next week, we will talk about something a little different. I want to talk about chapter 15 of the Acts of the Apostles and its meaning, not only at that time, but the meaning of it today, how it affected the church and many of the decisions that are made through... uh, uh, through a, a council all right, and I will give you a listing of the 21 ecumenical councils and a very brief description of uh, the main things that were uh, addressed at each of those councils alright let us end with a prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit Amen. Lord we thank you for this time together and we ask that you help us to open our minds and our hearts to the meaning of uh, Peter as the first Pope and the position of the Pope then and now. This is a a person that has been given uh, the power that you gave directly to Peter. And from that, he disperses it to all of the masses. So we ask that you bless us with an insight to the meaning and an appreciation for the position of the Pope. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen.